All right. Ready to go on? Ready. Okay. Every year, American Rivers compiles a list of rivers that are facing a crisis, from drought to pollution to climate change and more. And this year, the entire Mississippi River, from the headwaters in Minnesota to its destination in the Gulf of Mexico, has been designated as one of those top 10 most endangered rivers. In this episode of Stories from the Floodplain, we talk with Olivia Dorothy, Director of River Restoration in the Midwest at American Rivers. She talks about her journey to this work, what the listing means for the Mississippi, and what we can do to address the many issues facing one of the country's most iconic rivers. As a quick note to listeners, there's some echo towards the beginning of the episode, but it quickly resolves itself throughout. I am here today with Olivia Dorothy, Director of River Restoration in the Midwest at American Rivers. Olivia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be with you here today. What is American Rivers and what is your role within the organization? American Rivers is a national river conservation organization. Uh, our mission is to protect wild rivers, restore damaged rivers, and conserve clean water for people and nature. I am one of American Rivers' many restoration directors. Uh, I am based in the Midwest and I oversee all of our programs as they land in the Midwest, uh, that ranging from dam removal projects to floodplain restoration uh, to uh, drinking water quality projects uh, and floodplain management, levee safety, you know, you name it. If it's related to the river and it's in the Midwest, it's under my purview. And you are a Prairie Rivers Network alum of sorts. Yes. <laughs> what, what's your history with our organization at Prairie Rivers Network? So I started out volunteering with Prairie Rivers Network uh, when I was in college, a freshman in college, and I eventually was hired uh, to provide support staff, which was basically secretarial services uh, for the organization. Uh, so I answered the phone a lot, worked on mailings, and yeah, just a lot of whatever uh, staff needed support, uh, I would provide assistance for that. Um, so yeah, until I graduated and, uh, but it definitely got me started working in river conservation and river management. Was there anything you learned at Prairie Rivers Network that you've carried into the rest of your work life? Yeah, so I learned at Prairie Rivers, you know, how hard environmentalists have to work uh, to when basically you know the threats to rivers are multifaceted they are widespread um and they are hard to track down and so you know it is a very challenging field uh to work in uh river management and river policy for the benefit of the environment and you know that was a lesson that i learned working with prairie rivers network in particular i worked um, during my time there, I worked on the Salt Fork River case um, and the dredging and clear cutting, um, you know, and that was a case that we lost and it was, you know, it was a really tough um, lesson. It was a good lesson to have early on uh, to really understand uh, what it took to, you know, win cases and, you know, what it feels like to lose cases. Um, you know, I learned the lesson there that when you work in the environmental sector, 
you know, every loss is permanent and every win is temporary. Yeah, we're truly playing the long game. Um, and there are a lot of uphill battles with stark power differentials. And I do want to come back to that again later as we talk um, about why it is so difficult to get wins on some of these river issues. Before we get to that, though, okay, so we're kind of moving backwards in time. But so you you spent you're you're spending your professional life working to protect places, to foster a better, healthier relationship between human communities and the natural world. What do you think led you to this path? Why is this something that you've decided to spend your time doing? Well, I, <laughs> it actually all started out on the middle fork of the Vermilion River. And, you know, I grew up in Urbana. Um, that was where my family took me paddling. And I noticed at a very young age that, um, that the middle fork was a really beautiful place and as we would drive you know from urbana out to the middle fork and even just looking at the streams and creeks that were near my home like the boneyard creek um, that flows through urbana champaign like i noticed that those creeks and those streams and those rivers they weren't as beautiful as the Middle Fork. And so I just, I asked, I asked my parents who were both active in environmental advocacy um, and they, they answered honestly, they said this place was protected. And there were people that helped, you know, there were individuals who helped found Prairie Rivers Network, um, you know, who were involved in that protection. And my parents knew them. I heard stories about you know, the activism um, that they engaged in to protect the Middle Fork under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. Um, and I learned, I don't even know how old I was, I think I might have been eight or nine or 10. And I learned at that age, like, that this was something that people needed to do. And, you know, in that, in my, um, you know, what I saw at that young age was really just like, this place is pretty you know, and this place is ugly. I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't understand, you know, what the, um, what made a place ugly versus pretty visually, aesthetically, but I wanted to learn that. And that's what sparked my interest in it, um, in this career and, um, and what led me down the path of working on you know, river conservation, uh, river management, uh, water policy, and those types of things. I love that story. I think we should just <laughs> capture that and and use it itself as a, uh, you know, as like that just could be a flyer in and of itself. Um, <laughs> no, I do. I lo I love that story, and I like I you know, sure, it's just kind of a surface level. Mm -hmm. interpretation of what is beauty or what's you know aesthetically pleasing but obviously like there's some truth there and mm -hmm. i think you know that you as a young child recognize that and even better ask about it yeah you know? yeah and it was great that my parents had an answer yes to it and yes. i got to hear those stories Okay, well, let's dig into rivers a little bit. Let's talk about streams and rivers and what makes them more or less healthy and and more or less beautiful, expansively defined. What is a river to you? I, you know, I think people think of a bounded body of flowing water, mm -hmm. right? Okay, there's the river. 
right? I cross the river, I see the river. Mm-hmm. But when you or when, you know, you as American rivers define a river, what what all is encompassed in that idea? Yeah, so rivers are flowing uh, bodies of water. Um, and uh, one fun fact about rivers is that there's sometimes not always water <laughs> in the river. And so a river is really, you know, it's a place in the landscape where water can flow or does flow. And that is a um, very all-encompassing definition of what a river is. And rivers can look very different on different landscapes. I spend a lot of time working on the Mississippi River, which a lot of people would not question is a river, but is in fact, the upper portion of it isn't a river. It's actually um, a series of slack water pools. Uh, We don't get to a real functioning river until we get to the lower portions of it. And even there, we've got a river that's very segmented and disconnected from its floodplain. Um, You know, rivers in urban landscapes can look like ditches. They can look like storm sewers. They can look like you know, they, they can look a lot of different ways, um, just depending on, you know, the amount of human modification, the geologic features that have shaped the landscape, um, you know, but the, the real gist of it, you know, a river is where you have moving water and rivers have um, different components to them, you know, in addition to that, uh, you know, the movement of flowing water, uh, there's rivers also have floodplains, um, which is that transition zone between the aquatic ecosystem and the terrestrial ecosystem. Those areas that can become inundated when there are heavy rain or snow events. Um, so, you know, rivers can be natural, they can be heavily modified, and, you know, rivers that have been rivers formerly might not be rivers today and we might have rivers where there didn't used to be. Um, they're very, rivers are very, very dynamic. They love to move around and it is that movement and those forces of water across the landscape that make a river what it is. That's part of the piece that I'm particularly interested in. Rivers are dynamic and they move and you, t- you mentioned the floodplains a little bit and you talked about how some rivers are cut off from their floodplains. And I, you know, if you think about kind of this classic, let's just imagine in your mind, like a river valley between, you know, two mountainous areas and, you know, the river itself is what has created that kind of valley. And in a sense, you could say, well, the river is that flow of water, but, you know, sometimes I look at it and like, well, the river is everything that the river itself has shaped, you know, when, um, when we kind of redefine rivers to be limited to, you know, bank to bank, you know, yeah. it's just that flow of water, we're kind of losing the larger sense of the role it has played in the landscape, really well beyond the banks out into the floodplain, you know, into the, the, the natural community, um, and all of the species human and otherwise that, that make use of that. Yeah, I don't know, there's a question there. I'm just responding to nodding in agreement (laughs) (laughs) yes that's absolutely true oh one thing i do want to add um to that response is just a point that i want to make that that rivers can be large and they can be small um there isn't 
any, from a scientific perspective, there's no difference between a creek, a stream, and a river. Uh, it's the same uh, hydraulic forces that are at work. It doesn't matter what the size or the volume of water that that uh, river is carrying. Um, I know that uh, there's oftentimes, you know, we think about streams and creeks as being smaller than rivers, but they're from a scientific perspective, there's not actually a difference between them. So you can call the Mississippi River a creek if you want to. And some people do when that, when I entertain folks from the lower Mississippi River up in the northern reaches of it, they oftentimes look out across the river and they're like, this isn't a river, this is a creek, because <laughs> to them it's small. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. At some level, it's all colloquialisms. Yes. Um, so last month, American Rivers released its list of the 10 most endangered rivers in America. Now, this list includes rivers from Maine to California, rivers of different kind and size and starkly different environmental settings, um, which kind of gets to what you were just saying, you know, like rivers, rivers are all of these things. There's, there's no real difference, but there are some differences in the reasons that these rivers are endangered. You know, I think most people are familiar with the concept of endangered species. Species numbers have gotten so small that threatened of being wiped out entirely. But what does it mean for a river to be endangered? What is an endangered river? Endangered rivers, uh, as we define them each year in our most endangered rivers list, these are rivers that are at a crossroads where there is some type of critical decision that's going to happen within the next year uh, that will influence the future ecological health of that river system. And so that's where we get that at risk component where we, you know, we're looking at those decision points and saying, you know, if this decision goes bad, this river ecosystem will suffer from it. Um, and so all of the rivers that are on the list, you know, they may not represent the most polluted uh, rivers in the nation, although Tar Creek number 10 in Oklahoma might actually qualify for that one, um, is a very highly polluted river. Um, so the list isn't just about, you know, habitat loss and pollution. It's really, you know, hinges on is there something that people can do to improve the health of these rivers over the next year? And so each of these rivers have that call to action um, that anyone can weigh in, uh, talk to their decision makers um, that represent them or that represent uh, the river in question and, you know, and help push these rivers and the decision makers to improve the health of those local rivers because we have, it's not just the ecosystem, but we have a lot of communities and economies that depend on the health of these rivers as well. Got it. That's very helpful. And we'll be sure to put a link to the American River site that lists all the rivers. And so that anyone listening to this can check out the resources and follow that call to action. So there are different reasons for any given river's endangerment, um, as you've listed it, right? You said that there's, it's based on a decision point, but I noticed as in your list, some rivers are endangered because of pollution or because of habitat loss. Other rivers are endangered maybe because of, um, maybe a quantity issue. Um, but, but beyond being endangered themselves, is there something 
that all of these rivers share some characteristic or condition which um, could help us understand why so many rivers all across the United States in various locations are endangered? Wow. So that's a very intense question. Um, and it, it leads me to think about, you know, the fact that uh, freshwater species are the most at risk of extinction per unit area. Um, you know, when we discuss things like the extinction crisis, the biodiversity loss, it is um, more acute in our rivers uh, and in our lakes than on the land. And unfortunately, because as humans, we cannot breathe underwater, we can't see what's going on underwater. Underneath the water, it is a little bit of a mystery as to what's going on. You know, it is easy, it has been very easy for people to ignore uh, rivers as they have declined and degraded because, you know, unless the actual color of the water changes or it lights itself on fire, which has happened occasionally, um, you know, people tend not to notice what's happening beneath the waves uh, of their favorite uh, local stream, river, or lake. And, you know, and I think it's for this reason that rivers across the nation are so at risk because activities have been allowed to continue uh, that degrade the river uh, over time to the point that, you know, now suddenly we don't have enough water in places. We, we don't have clean water. We don't have access to clean water like here in the Midwest. We have significant problems with um, pollution from uh, agricultural fertilizer runoff um, in our waters. And, you know, and we've have dams that are causing degradation of habitats to the extent that it threatens whole ecosystems. So yeah, you know, rivers and water, they tend to be, they've been throughout history, a little bit of a mystery to people. And we haven't really taken action to address changes as they've been occurring because we haven't really been able to see them. The earliest human civilizations and settlements are all along rivers, and yet we've kind of, you know, kind of trashed them as uh, as we've gotten away from that. It's uh, kind of ironic. Mm -hmm. So American Rivers listed the Colorado River as the most endangered river in the nation, or at least it's just number one on your list. I don't know if it means necessarily most endangered, but it was the one that you listed as number one. And certainly... We're seeing low water levels throughout the length of the Colorado. There's been, there's a lot of demand and not enough supply. Um, the disappearance of Lake Mead has been in the news quite a bit lately. And, you know, you hear about states fighting over how much water is allocated in the Colorado. So I think a lot of people, I, I imagine people can wrap their minds around what endangered might mean in that context, as well as having a decision point about how we address those issues. But we're here in the Midwest. Um, that's where we live, and that's where a lot of our work is focused. So let's talk about Midwestern rivers. The Mississippi River, perhaps the iconic river of American mythology, was also listed as endangered. Um, now, I imagine, I can't imagine someone might drive over or along the Mississippi River, see it, and think, well, there it is. 
it looks as mighty as always. There's plenty of water. I see things happening on the river. There's barges carrying cargo up or downstream. That looks like a river to me. Well, so Olivia, how is the Mississippi River endangered? Yeah, the Mississippi River um, from a pollution and degradation standpoint alone is very at risk of collapse. The Mississippi River, if you, there has actually been quite a bit of recent scientific publications on the biodiversity crisis. And if you look, you will see the Mississippi River and indeed all of America's major river systems, the Missouri River, the Ohio River, are these little ribbons of bright red running through the nation and signaling that these river ecosystems are the most at risk or some of the most at risk areas in the United States for species loss. And so that is very alarming. And, you know, we also know that the Mississippi River is being impacted by climate change in a very unique way. I live along the Mississippi River. Uh, and so folks might remember in 2019, we had the significant flood event. I was actually in downtown Davenport when their levy, their levy was the first to fail that season. And it is very scary to live along a river the size of the Mississippi River that is at flood stage for over 100 days. And that it's really that duration of flooding that is particularly problematic because all of our flood management systems are designed to endure very short flood events that range from a few days to a few weeks, not months on end. And so as we are trying to adapt to climate change, it presents a very significant safety risk that we have our flood management system that is designed to withstand the climate conditions of the past and not the future. You know, part of the, the reason why the Davenport levee failed was because of that time duration. The temporary barriers that were put in place, they had never been tested for that long of a period of time of the flood conditions that we were under um, during the 2019 flood. You know, levees become, as floods continue in terms of their duration, you know, the wetter a levee gets and the more it will erode the integrity of those levees. You know, levees and flood walls, these things are designed for short duration events. And as we look at climate change and the future along the Mississippi River, we see that there is a very pronounced shift from short duration flood events to long duration flood events. And so uh, American River certainly wants to sound the alarm about this um, and try to move cities and states to really shift flood management practices, um, you know, and looking more at things like natural infrastructure and restoring floodplains to flood compatible, you know, uses that enhance those natural ecosystems, as well as being areas that can absorb those floodwaters that won't fail. Uh, depending on how long a flood event happens to be. So we also know along the Mississippi River that, you know, most of the zip codes that touch the Mississippi River are flagged for some type of environmental justice issue. There are a lot of communities of low wealth 
There are a lot of communities of color that live in flood prone areas along the Mississippi River. And so we do have a lot of environmental justice issues as we look at the Mississippi River. So really the three crises that the nation is grappling with right now, racial justice, climate change, and biodiversity, um, these things are converging and magnifying issues on the Mississippi River. And so when we talk about the Mississippi River, you know, really being at risk, it is, you know, it's not just the biodiversity and the ecosystem, but we're also talking about human health and safety and social justice um, being at risk as well. So that kind of outlines the problem. But like I said earlier, you know, our most endangered rivers list really hinges on decision points. And so what's our decision point on the Mississippi River this year? Congress this year is considering uh, the, a new program called the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative. And this is a program that would allow the Environmental Protection Agency to set up a geographic office for the entire Mississippi River from the headwaters to the Gulf. It would allow the EPA to develop science-based restoration priorities, as well as a robust public engagement and dialogue around um, the needs of communities uh, to restore natural infrastructure, address environmental justice issues, as well as doing ecosystem restoration, water quality projects. And, you know, and this program, it's not just about communities that are along the river, but uh, the program will encompass the entirety of the Mississippi River watershed as it rests in the 10 states that borders the Mississippi River. And so this would include all of Illinois. Um, it would include all of Iowa, all of Missouri, significant chunks of Wisconsin and Minnesota as well. It would include all of Arkansas, Louisiana, uh, aside from the parts that are in the Gulf watershed and other lower Mississippi River states too. Um, so because we know that we can't just stop at the edge of the river, we got to look at you know, where the water is coming from on the landscape. That's a similar model that's been used to kind of other great watersheds or water systems around the country. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative, or MIRI, is modeled after the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Um, the Great Lakes has brought uh, billions of dollars to do ecosystem restoration projects that have had very tangible results uh, to improve water quality in the Great Lakes region. Uh, there are other watersheds uh, that have similar uh, geographic offices within the EPA. That those include the Puget Sound uh, and the Chesapeake Bay, just to name a few. Um, and they have done a lot to clean up and restore uh, ecosystems in those watersheds. And so we're asking for this to be implemented on the Mississippi River. It would be a voluntary program. It's not regulatory, um, but it would bring in additional resources uh, to support the various conservation and restoration programs that are already operating on the river. So it wouldn't replace anything uh, that's already operating on the Mississippi River, um, but it would help us set priorities and bolster uh, the existing uh, programs that we are doing on the river and fill gaps. We definitely have a lot of gaps 
on the Mississippi River in terms of restoration need and funding availability. And GLRI, well, Great Lakes Restoration Initiative has been very successful. One of the last bipartisan success stories, I feel like they're bringing in about $400 million a year. And I know that's had significant impact around the Great Lakes region in terms of just funding restoration and and restoring some of these communities. Um, so yeah, like I, if if a similar thing is possible along the Mississippi River, I think that would be um, that would be huge. Um, it's funny that it, that makes me think like I have a kind of a theory. So I've worked on carp for a bunch of years, and um, you know, one of my theories about there's lots of invasive species. There's dozens and dozens of invasive species, and well, why have we spent all this time focusing on carp and not one of the other ones? And you know, I think one thing. One theory that I have is that we have allowed our rivers to be sacrifice zones for so long, like you were talking about the degradation earlier. And there's been a larger, more powerful constituency around the Great Lakes. And I mean, there's a multi-state coordinated effort to bring in money to protect the lakes and protect the areas around the lakes. And you get stakeholders and a constituency that want to continue to protect that spot and so like they see a threat like carp coming well they organize around it and they demand action on it and i think that's something that's been lacking on the mississippi riverside where there are more invasive species in the great lakes that are going to come into the mississippi river and we've not really been able to like get traction to act on those and like i would say that it i think in my opinion it's um because we have allowed the river mississippi river and all of its tributaries and that this whole region to be a sacrifice zone and, and be so degraded that then you lose the champions for that system, for that area, for that place. How is, uh, well, one, you, you know, is that, <laughs> how do you think, what do you, what do you buy my theory? And, and two, um, if so, what is American Rivers doing to kind of build constituency around the idea of you know, rivers and the Mississippi River and the inland waters? Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, you know, rivers have for a long time been seen as, you know, just transportation corridors or as areas where refuse can be dumped and carried away and sort of out of sight, out of mind. And that mentality is still very much active on the Mississippi River. Uh, in general, and rivers across the Midwest. Um, they are really viewed by most people in, you know, our communities and in our economy as disposal and transportation systems as opposed to uh, natural resources and ecosystem services. And that is very problematic. So I think that you're spot on right there in terms of um, you know, how we have allowed this degradation to persist. And as much as I love Mark Twain, but he has to take some of the blame with this for, you know, so romanticizing the Mississippi River as a transportation corridor. And to the extent that we have very heavily modified, very heavily modified the Mississippi River um, to serve as a transportation corridor to sort of carry forward that vision that was established by uh, Mark Twain. And so it is 
you know, it is very problematic and very challenging then to change hearts and minds about, you know, what is the purpose of the Mississippi River? And is the purpose of the Mississippi River to be a disposal mechanism or is the purpose to provide clean drinking water and fisheries resources and, you know, wildlife habitat, all of which are things that people need as well. So American Rivers are working, we are working with our partners, um, particularly at the Mississippi River Network, which is a multi-state, uh, multi-organization uh, network of NGOs that includes Prairie Rivers Network as well as a member of the Mississippi River Network. And we are really trying to build that coalition and that voice around the Mississippi River and the need to do restoration of the river for not just for people, but also for wildlife um, and water quality as well. I've had a long ongoing conversation with Rachel Haverlock of the University of Illinois Chicago Freshwater Lab. In fact, she was the first guest we ever had on the podcast. Um, we've talked a lot about carp and invasive species, and I've kind of shared with her my opinion that I kind of shared with you. And, you know, and again, when I say it's a sacrifice zone, it's important to understand like, well, it's a sacrifice zone to the benefit of, in my opinion, a few industries in particular, petrochemicals and ag, which themselves are heavily intertwined industries that rely on each other. You know, Rachel has called the river a pipeline because um, I think she really wants to call attention to, you know, the way we're using the river in that, that transportation sense to move actually climate wrecking products, you know, whether it's a pipeline or not, obviously it has other functions and roles, but I'm interested in, well, let me ask it this way. Um, who do you think sets the policy agenda for our rivers? You said early on, like, oh, it's a, you know, we're, these are really hard battles and we're fighting uphill battles. Well, that's, you know, kind of presupposes that it's not it's not us, the, the environmentalists. So we're not setting the agenda. So who's really setting the policy agenda in regards to how our rivers are managed and operated? Well, it's, since we're focusing here on the Mississippi River, the Yeah, and I, I and I mean kind of the, the Midwestern <laughs> Midwestern rivers, because I know, yeah. understand it's a very different scenario like out west, say. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So the Mississippi River is under the management of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers that maintains the river primarily as a navigation and transportation corridor. Um, the Army Corps does have a mission to um, promote restoration and environmental health and uh, as well as flood risk management. However, those two missions are secondary on the Mississippi River. So there is actually a legal framework that prioritizes uh, navigation and transportation as the primary management objective for the Mississippi River, as well as the Illinois River. We are in Illinois, so I should mention that as well. In other parts of the Midwest, um, away from the mainstream of the Mississippi River, most of the rivers are managed in private ownership, um, oftentimes through drainage districts, drainage and levee districts, um, and those rivers are managed to 
really serve as systems, drainage systems that will convey excess water away from um, farm fields. And we'll often carry with that excess water all the chemicals, soil, poop, fertilizer, that trash, litter um, that might be in those fields. That is, those are the entities that are really managing and setting the agenda. Those are the entities that have the legal rights and powers to make alterations to the river and to the river's habitat. And so um, because of that legal framework, it becomes very difficult for environmental groups um, to modify management decisions. And, you know, and obviously I can't get into uh, too much into litigation and cases and things that might be pending, you know, but it is, it is a struggle. I mentioned earlier that on the environmental side, every loss is permanent and every win is temporary. You know, we had a significant portion of the Mississippi River floodplain down in the state of Mississippi in 2008. Um, there was a Clean Water Act vetoed issued under uh, President Bush's administration and um, the Trump administration abruptly overturned that veto and that threatened um, over 200,000 acres of the Mississippi River's floodplain that had been protected up to that point. You know, we challenged that uh, decision in court and we ultimately came out victorious um, under the Biden administration, the veto was reinstated. Um, but that just goes to show, you know, when even with the environmental tools that we have in place with the Clean Water Act, with the National Environmental Policy Act, it is still environmental damage is just, you know, it's really hard to track and it is very hard to challenge and it takes a lot of time and effort and from coming from the environmental community, we are significantly under-resourced as compared to the companies and the industries and the governments that have taxing authority that may want to degrade these river ecosystems for economic gains. So short-term economic gain, gains, I should say. So if the near-term decision point is hopefully passage of Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative Act. What do you see as kind of the longer term path forward to address some of what you were just talking about? You know, the fact that there's so much power in the in the hands of um, a few industries that don't necessarily care about the environmental well-being of either the river or the communities that depend on them. You know what? As as the environment as the environmental community, you know how do we flip that script? What's the way forward? Do you think? Yeah, so I think um, you know one thing that we really need to do in the environmental community that I am hopeful Mary will help fix is is to provide that rallying point among the environmental communities to say you know listen the Mississippi River is the lifeblood of our nation. And it works, the Mississippi River works very hard for America. And we need to be working just as hard to protect and restore the Mississippi River. 
um, because there's only one Mississippi River. We're not, you know, we can't mitigate the damage of the Mississippi River by creating a second Mississippi River somewhere else. That's, we can't do that. You know, those strategies that oftentimes work on land, they don't work in rivers. You can't build a second Mississippi River for all the animals and plants and people that depend on it. So we've only got one. We need to protect it and we need to enhance it. And, you know, one thing that I always like to point out when I'm talking to people, especially in central Illinois, you know, who depend on uh, the Muhammad Aquifer for their drinking water source. I grew up in Urbana. The Muhammad Aquifer was um, the source of my drinking water, you know, all through my youth. The Muhammad Aquifer is recharged in the floodplain of the Illinois River. And that floodplain where those recharge zones are, is levied off. They're levied off and farmed. The floodplains levied off and farmed. And that is going to become a problematic use of that floodplain area as climate change um, causes more extreme droughts. The Muhammad Aquifer can be recharged during flood events. That's, you know, a lot of times we often see groundwater and surface water as being separate and really they're part of the same system. And, you know, and that's why, you know, looking at problems holistically, issues like the Mississippi River Restoration Resilience Initiative that where the EPA can come and make some science-based priorities um, on actions to protect and restore our rivers, including our floodplains and recharge zones for our aquifers that are gonna be really important during drought years. And that's something that here in the Midwest, we haven't quite caught up with. If you look at California and out West where they are dealing with much more severe desertification, they are uh, looking at their groundwater sources and their aquifers and, and seeing that connection of needing to let their rivers flood and flow over the floodplain so that those aquifers can get recharged. You know, they're, they're free storage areas. You know, we don't need to build reservoirs. We just need to use the reservoirs that nature gave us with our groundwater reserves and our aquifers. And, you know, and that is one of the side effects of of sacrificing rivers um, and especially floodplains and trying to push water out of the floodplains so that we can farm or develop, otherwise develop that flood prone land. Um, that's, you know, a consequence of it. And it's a consequence that we didn't recognize or haven't really recognized until fairly recently. So those types of things need to be informing our management of the river and why we hope um, that we can bring the EPA in that can really prioritize the river's health. Because, you know, right now with the Mississippi River under the management of the Corps of Engineers, you know, their priority is navigation and ecosystem restoration is, you know, secondary or tertiary to that primary objective of river navigation. And so that's why we really think it's important um, to get this program established so that you know, we have that rallying point and we have the information and we have the prioritization to make good decisions. Yeah, everything is connected. That's something that I learn every day in this work, everything is connected. Mm -hmm. St. Lawrence Seaway to Chicago, to the Gulf of Mexico and everything in between the 
from the Illinois River to the Muhammad Aquifer, it's all connected and the decisions we make have uh, far ranging impacts. You're just, you were describing some of the problems with the, um, the Mississippi and you talked about habitat loss and pollution and the need to really mitigate what we're, you know, what the reality is going to be from climate change and, and flooding and, and using natural infrastructure to, to address some of that. And I kind of get the sense that actually, rather than discrete problems, those are kind of all of a piece. So can you, could you just say like, you know, maybe briefly, what on the ground does that look like using natural infrastructure to um, alleviate some of the flooding problems, you know, and, and what does that mean for pollution and wildlife habitat? Like, what does that actually look like in and along the river? Yeah, so natural infrastructure uh, along a river is really about restoring floodplains and reconnecting rivers to their floodplains for rivers to function and provide the, their full range of ecosystem services, they have to be connected. They have to be connected laterally and longitudinally, uh, which means we need to, you know, along all of our river streams, take out more dams. We need to reconnect rivers with their floodplains. Um, and in terms of climate change, you know, both of these actions are really important because Dams actually release methane. The reservoirs behind dams that capture a lot of organic matter with their sediment, those release quite a large amount of methane. Um, and our floodplains are you know, areas that can absorb and convey floodwater away from population centers. Um, you know, if you think about East St. Louis and Illinois, that entire community is in you know, the historic Mississippi River floodplain. And, uh, and that is a community of low wealth, as well as, uh, you know, there are several pockets of communities of color that live in the East St. Louis area. And, you know, they have a very high residual risk um, caused by uh, flooding. And, you know, if those levees should fail. And so it is really important that we have these relief valves along rivers um, where their floodplains can be connected and have uh, healthy ecosystems. I was just reviewing um, a report that is going to be coming out soon um, from the USGS that you know shows that our floodplain forests along the Mississippi River are you know continuing to decline and there is a very significant need um, to protect that habitat and protecting that habitat means that it will reduce flood risk for the rest of the communities that live along the Mississippi River. So that's what really what natural infrastructure, you know, looks like along the river. And it's not something that we see a lot of, unfortunately, even though there are very significant economic returns for doing these types of projects. Is there anywhere you would like to point listeners? Any, um, like I said, we'll put up a link to the American River site with the list of the most endangered rivers and ways to take action. Um, anything else you want to direct listeners toward or any interesting books or articles, anything that you think would broaden their understanding of the issue? Oh, wow. Yeah. Let me look back here at my bookshelf. One of my favorite books that have has really shaped um, how I work on the Mississippi River is actually not a book about rivers at all. It is the book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. 
um, which is about the history of redlining and um, the how environmental factors um, played into uh, redlining um, during the New Deal era. And, you know, as I work on rivers, I continue to see the ramifications of that policy being carried forward, you know, continuously into today. And um, that was a book that just really, it was one of those uh, aha moments that I had where all of a sudden I understood so many, the origins of so many of the problems that pollution, river degradation, as well as environmental justice issues um, as they're being manifest along the Mississippi River. And so I always really encourage people who are working or interested in river issues, you know, to read that book so that they can, you know, understand how um, environmental issues and racial justice issues are very much intertwined and have been intertwined throughout our history. So that will be my plug. And of course, I do want to encourage everyone to go check out the Mississippi River Networks uh, website and um, you can join and become a river citizen and get all kinds of fun updates about uh, activities along the Mississippi River and things that you can do um, to help the Mississippi River. So great. Olivia, thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for being a champion for our rivers. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for having me. A huge thank you to Olivia for joining us and for the tireless effort she puts into caring for rivers in the Midwest. We at PRN are very fortunate to have her and American Rivers as a partner in this work. You can use the link in the description to take action and tell your congressperson to support the Mississippi River Restoration and Resilience Initiative. If you'd like to support this podcast and the work Prairie Rivers Network does to protect water, heal land, and inspire change, you can donate and become a member at prairierivers.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.